Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, AEA Microphones, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 201. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 201 you're listening to. My guest today is Christopher Scott Cooper. Chris got his start as a front of house mixer and live sound engineer. And in the 90s, he decided to go down the path of the studio rat. So he uh, worked for many years at the famed music annex here in the Bay Area, and he worked his way up from intern to chief engineer. But about 15 years ago, he chose a, the independent route, the freelance route. So he built himself a, a nice high-end studio called Blue 7 Audio. And he's kind of come full circle because he is doing front of house mixing again for the Fox Theater in Redwood City. And uh, he works on various events and with bands around the Bay Area. But he definitely personifies the audio professional who has chosen a world of diversification. So he's experienced in live recording, live sound, sound effects capture, sound design, studio recording, TV film, systems install. He also taught courses at Cogswell College and guest lectures at various audio institutions. So Christopher Scott Cooper coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, get your coffee. I'm going to ramble. I'm also going to bitch a little too. Mmm. I'm still drinking that coffee Nick Krill sent me. Nick, thanks, man. It's good coffee. I'm almost out. All right, so we'll start with the ramble. Did a little 2K. I know it's like nothing compared to you, some of you guys out there doing these marathons. But yeah, a little 2K run with the family this morning. Crack a dawn. And you know what? I was just about to tell you about this app that I've been using uh, to do these workouts in the morning it's just like you know kind of a guided you know do this next and do this many repetitions etc i forgot to put the link in the show notes for like two or three episodes ago i think anyways i'm gonna put it in this episode so check the show notes if you hate going to a gym and you just want to have your own personal workout me i like to turn on the news see what's going on in the world and do these workouts right next to moto the snoring bulldog that's right Hey, uh, you might have caught it in episode number 200. Uh, I mentioned a book series. What is this organ player doing? Listen to that. That is outrageous, man. That is pretty... That's crazy. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, book series. Working Class Audio Journal. Coming out on Hal Leonard, or through Hal Leonard. And uh, it'll be, you know, everywhere. I'm sure we'll be able to figure out how to sell it here off of the Working Class Audio website. But, uh, yeah, I'll keep you informed. I'll let you know when it's out. It's We're almost done, so should I imagine by the end of the year we'll be ready to release it. So more on that to come. Working Class Audio Journal, that's right. All right, I'm going to bitch you a little bit. Listen, folks, I've been out on Gear Sluts a lot these last few weeks, and I've been on some forums on Facebook. Audio should be a sanctuary, and uh, it, at least it is to me. And it's a great place to come, and uh, you know, on particularly gear sluts. If you go and you're like discussing stuff with folks, it's great. You can learn a lot, a lot of good stuff going on. But God, man, there's some of you out there that are really violating the Andrew Shep's motto: 
of Don't Be a Dick. So, look, be kind, man. Life is too short. There's enough bullshit in the world going on. There's no reason that you got to be a dick on these forums. Absolutely none. I've been, I've, I know this is nothing new because believe me, I've been like, I've had some people try to thrash me in the past and that's, you know, whatever. But look, if you think you're the smartest person in the world, just remember, there's more than one way to skin a cat in this game of pro audio. So be cool, be nice, be kind to each other. And if you don't understand why somebody's doing something or saying something, ask. Get them to explain. But be cool. Yeah, there's no reason to be an asshole. And I, you all know what I'm talking about. You all have been out there. You've seen what's going on and what people are saying. And when the when the discussion devolves into uh, chaos, it's just oh, it's very disappointing. So, like Andrew Shep said, don't be a dick. All right, I did mention Gear Sluts, so I, of course, want to mention to you that Gear Sluts does support this podcast, and we support them. Jules and the crew have been behind us for a long time, and we certainly appreciate their help. Uh, so be sure and stop by the uh, Audio Life subforum that Working Class Audio sponsors. Great to hang out there and, and get some uh, new ideas about life and all the other things that surround the pro audio world it's not gear centric if you're burnt out on the gear discussion that's that's cool check that out gearsluts.com also go on over to uh uaudio.com that's universal audio's website i'm actually going there right as we speak uh to remind you that uh they do have a new promo they always have some great promos and uh this one in particular that I'm going to put in the show notes. This is uh, good until December 31st. If you buy an Apollo Twin or an Arrow, you'll get some uh, plugins from Neve, Lexicon, Fender, and some of the UA in-house plugins. That'll be in the show notes, so uh, check it out. They also have something else going on there. What else? I just saw it. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Uh, if you, uh, you can get 40% off certain plugins now... Oh, yeah, on 28 plugins, and you get to vote your favorites in the UAD 2018 elections. That ends November 5th, so that's coming up pretty quick here. Ties in there with the uh, U.S. midterm elections. The music you're hearing, that's coming from our friends at License Lab. I love their punk rock collection. That's where that comes from. Oh, yeah. That's right up my alley. <laughs> Well, uh, so Christopher Scott Cooper's interview, uh, we did this over at Highwire in Oakland, California. So we're sitting outside. You might hear a little bit of traffic noise. So, um, yeah, we sat and had coffee, had a good discussion. So let's get to it. Christopher Scott Cooper here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're it's an honor. We're at High Wire Coffee. Excuse the traffic. We're outside. <laughs> this is in Oakland, in Rockridge. I've got a nice cappuccino. Thank yeah. you. Chris has a nice cappuccino. I have an Americano. Where did you grow up? Uh, predominantly in the Bay Area as a child in the South, but in Virginia and Oklahoma briefly, and then uh, most of my life here in the Bay Area on the peninsula. What was the, the pivotal moment that got you into audio on a professional level? I was playing in bands, I've been a musician since I was five, guitar player, and I was playing in bands and 
suddenly people were going, hey, can you help us with this? Can you help us with that? Next thing I know, I was doing front of house for bands and touring. And I did that for like gruelingly five years in the late 80s when things were heavy and large and bulky and analog. Did you have a mentor in those early days? No, I was learning it as I was doing it. And I honestly had no clue. But I love music and I loved production. Since I was a kid in the 70s listening to records, I was like, ooh, how did they do that? Oh, that's cool. And I was always trying to like make the band sound like a record, which was really hard in those days. It was brutally harsh. You know, but in some ways better sounding than some things we have today and in some ways not. It's very, it's very interesting. How are you trying to educate yourself at that time? Obviously, there's no internet. So what were your resources for education? I would watch other guys because we'd be on tour with other guys or bigger bands. And I would just pay attention and listen. You know, I would try to figure out how things worked. Why was somebody doing that? I would read whatever magazines are coming out, like recording magazines. There was no PA or live sound magazines in those days. It was all, you know, like recording or, or early version of mix. You know, it was, there wasn't really a lot of resources. So I would often go in like bookstores and read, you know, the recording magazines. And when did the Yamaha live sound manual come out? Uh, that was about that period. He wrote that then, but we, most people in the industry didn't know about it, except unless you were involved in the AES or something, because it didn't really get published beyond that. But then I would think sometime about, 89, 90, it became, because I still have an, an original first edition. <laughs> Obviously, the audio world has grown immensely to where we're at today in 2018, but in 88, 89, 90, what was the world of audio like? Well, for live sound, it was it was pretty rough and tumble because you weren't making a lot of money. You were doing a lot of hard hours, lifting a lot of gear. It was a very physical kind of thing. And then mixing was always, to me, was always very stressful because it was trying to make something that didn't necessarily sound very good sound good yeah and plus you know not really having a lot of knowledge until a couple of years in it was even harder i was always struggling with that i learned very quickly how to deal with problematic problems like feedback and all i learned very quickly about that because it was like okay how do we control this what do we do what do we need to do and i would experiment i'd often if i had time i'd set up systems and test them right then and there you know before band got there for sound check i would just be like purposely making things feedback so I could figure out what was going on. <laughs> Did you spend a lot of your time thinking about setups yeah. and how to make them still better? Still do. Still do. It's it's a disease. Because I still do live sound now. It's like I've come full circle. I'm doing it again. But it's like so much easier now. Huh. So much nicer. Yeah. The tools at our disposal it's these a, days are amazing. so much more advanced. It's amazing. Well, did you grow tired of, of doing live sound? Oh, yeah. I burned out on it after five years. I'd always wanted to be in the recording side. When I was about 15, I had a reel-to-reel four-track I bought and uh, used and refurbed and figured out how it worked. I didn't have any microphones, so I was using a pair of headphones in reverse, <laughs> which I still do on some things. Uh, you know, I had a 58 or something, you know, something cheap. I would just record things. I was with my friends, and it was very rudimentary. I wish I still had some of that stuff. I have no idea where any of those cassettes or anything have gone, but or those real reels. But I started doing that, and I was always interested in production. So in about 1990, I'd had enough of the live thing because when I wasn't doing that, I was I was doing contracting work. I was construction or plumbing or solar or something like that, or you know, trying to play in bands and trying to get something going. And I said, you know what? I need to I need to do something different. And I was actually recording my first album at a little studio in Redwood City called Dragon Studios, which was run by Charlie Albert. And he says, well, 
you should come intern. You have a lot of experience. And I started interning there, and two months later, he's like, well, yeah, the studio's closing, and I'm moving over to Music Annex, because I'm now the manager over there. What was going on was Dave Porter, who owned the Annex, he was going around and buying up all the little competition studios to get everybody to concentrate on the Annex. It was a very shrewd move, a little bit, a wow. bit brutal, but that was what he was doing in the late 80s, early 90s. So I started interning at the Annex in full-fledged five-room facility with like, you know, like 20 employees. I mean, this place was, it was an interesting place when I came in and it became even busier and more bustling in the years following. But And Music Annex, for the listeners, is located south of San Francisco. Menlo Park. Menlo Park. Doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. But was there for many years. Uh, from 1978 till just about three years ago. Wow. Yeah. Long, long history. So tell me about your time at the Annex and, and people uh, you learned from. And- oh, that was a lucky stroke because it put me in the new dawning age of digital, which was all happening in Silicon Valley. Obviously, you know, Opcode, my good friend Chris Hallaby, who ran Opcode, and uh, Chris Bach, who ran Audio Media, or as it became Digital Design, were two buildings away. I worked with them. I've been working on Pro Tools since 1991. And when I built a studio for Chris Bach at Digidesign, and my mom worked in the hallway, worked across the hallway at a different company, and one of my high school girlfriends was their receptionist, and I was working at the Annex two buildings away. It was this weird little... It's a very small world. A very small world. It was very pivotal. When I came into it, you know, the whole notion of recording two-inch and all, it was fairly new to me. I was kind of a late bloomer in terms of that. Because I'd been out, you know, doing live sound. I'd been in studios, I'd seen, but I didn't really have much experience with it. So very quickly, I, I pretty much was living at the studio because not only when they discovered that I could do contracting work, it was, oh, we can put him to work. Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of part of my end, was my experience doing the live sound and Charlie uh, helping me out and then having the contracting experience. The studio was actually kind of not in good shape. It'd seen a lot of wear and tear in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then we were in a transitional period like all studios go in kind of you know patterns and waves where you're you're down because budgets are low and you're not doing you're barely scraping by and then all of a sudden there's a boom and if you're a long-term studio that's what happens you know those are the cycles so we were just about to start a new upcycle that was pretty serious because we had games were starting toy industry voiceover recording with digital which i started i was doing sessions voiceover editing and all it was one of the first things i ever did and they were grueling. I learned to edit tape extremely thoroughly very fast because you had to be, you know, you had to be really fast and do stuff, especially with uh, guys coming in and doing voiceover for video or radio or television spots. It was like, these guys fly because time is money. And we didn't have random access capabilities. Everything, you know, we would literally, there was a guy I worked on, I can't remember his name now, but he was from a little studio across the street from Music Annex Green Street that was called Green Street Studios. Yeah. Larry something, I think. But this guy would come in and he would record all the music on two inch and I was the engineer. And he'd literally be like, okay, let's roll back. And I had to anticipate what he was thinking because he was literally, we'd record two measures and he'd go, okay, well, I want to change, roll back and punch in all while he's talking. And the band would have to be right there with him and like pick it up and make the change he was doing. That's how fast we were going. I cut my teeth doing that stuff. Editing, two-inch editing got really complicated, really fast on a lot of this stuff. And so it was a huge learning ground for the first three years. Talk about getting dumped into something that I'd never experienced but wanted to. I was like, ah, pushed underwater at 12 feet and like swim. (laughs) And I did. (laughs) 
how did you feel about the pressure about the, oh my God, am I going to screw this up? Well, there's that element. But for me, it was how I distracted myself from that and didn't let that take over was, I, like I said, I'm kind of a technically adapt person that kind of fascinates me. So I just, okay, how do I do this? How do I make this work? And I would concentrate on that. How do I make this fly? So in some respects, you know, I really learned the technical, but it would be a little while before I got kind of the, the heart side of it a little more. You know, as I started doing more and more music recordings late at night, because when you're a young engineer, that's what they give you, the overnight sessions, which are the cheap hour rates. So a lot of Mexican bands, a lot of crap punk bands, a lot of crap rock bands, a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs. It was like the end of the 80s, we're transitioning into the 90s, and there were still kind of the hangovers left coming late at night who were really bad, and you're recording and they disappear, and then you'd see a band member from one band in another band, you know, a couple of months later, late at night, still bad, <laughs> still recording. That was kind of how I got around the, the nervous thing. And that would come back later when I started working with people like Fred Catero yeah. or working with big names. I ended up working with Ronnie Montrose on a couple of records and as an assistant to my other mentor, Tom Carr. And that was when kind of the nervous thing came back because then I'm really under pressure to do well, like exceedingly well. Tell me how it was making a living at the Annex. It was actually really good because in the 90s with the boom of the, as I said, the game toys Music actually became kind of a lesser thing because there was all this corporate work, all this game work, all this toy work, you know, there all this voiceover work for radio. I mean, I was doing radio spots or um, voiceover for technical systems that were brand new, like all the BMW, Mercedes-Benz prompts when you would talk to the car in the late 90s. I did all those. So they would come, we would record the prompts, I would edit them, give them a name, because the system was really crude. It was, a, it was a file that the system would look at based upon its not moniker, its name, you know, whatever it was called. Hmm. And uh, same with phone systems. Like if you have AT&T phone system, they're still using the prompts I recorded 15 years ago in their voicemail system. And now they're using uh, Gary Williams, voiceover talent, for some of their stuff. Gary lives like 20 blocks from me in Fremont. I've known Gary for 30 years because I've worked with him as a voiceover talent. And so now they're using his prompts and I and he's recording them in a studio I built for him <laughs> in back of his house. So, Well, so how long did the, the Annex run for you last? 15 years. I uh, went in as an intern, left as chief engineer. Wow. And went independent 15 years ago. So it's been 15 years this past May. Why did you leave? That's a delicate and Always, an important no. question. Okay. The boom of the 90s at the Annex was brilliant. It was a huge learning time, a lot of development. I was on the cutting edge of all that digital. And then the dot-com crash came in 2001 when Silicon Valley really kind of over-bubbled and collapsed. And that was a little brutal in the Bay Area. That, that hurt a lot of studios. It hurt the industry. And it hurt the Annex. It's like our boom literally in five days went from boom to bust over the course of one week. The Annex scene, as you describe it, was very diversified in toys and VO and all these different areas. And then overnight... A lot of it went away. I can remember um, the week. It was in May of 2001. I'd been in Fremont. I'd bought a house over there and moved over there in 1998. And so I drive across the bridge every day. And I would try to get up early because traffic was getting bad. Not as bad as it is now, but it was getting bad. And I noticed on the Monday morning that traffic was light, which was weird, on a Monday morning. And there were no BMWs, Mercedes, Jaguars, no expensive cars. It was all working class cars. And I, I really didn't put that together till later in the week, but I noticed it. I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. And I got into the studio 
And I had a bunch of sessions booked and like a third of them had canceled that morning, which means they pay for the time. They'd canceled. And then our book had been full, almost full for the week. I mean, there were very few spaces. Over the course of the next three days, that book was empty by Friday. And we were getting calls from people we didn't know at advertising agencies, like an intern or something, canceling sessions. We'd call the agency back and the number would be disconnected. It was all these advertising agencies out of Chicago and New York with branch offices in San Francisco and L.A. And they were closing them up because advertising dollars were disappearing that fast. And corp, you know, all this corporate work was disappearing. Radio voiceover work was like vanishing out the door. It's like a domino effect. It was huge. And it was fast. It was scary fast. And, and, and Green Street in San Francisco where... Green Street Music Annex, uh, that was all film and television kind of stuff. There, It almost dried up for them overnight. And it was it was brutal. It was just like, okay, reassessment time. So things sort of changed uh, pretty dramatically at the Annex. The owner, when, when you have a studio that big, you're always buying things on lease because you may be changing them in three years, you know, kind of thing. And the first indicator to me that things were going south was Music Annex Studio A was renowned for the Neve 8046 in there, which... I was very fortunate to be an engineer who learned on a Neve, an original, you know, beautiful 1974 Neve, which I still miss to this day. That got sold. And I literally was the guy, like, taking it apart, removing the glass between the control room and the studio because it wouldn't fit through the doors, and getting a crew together to lift it through and take it out the back entrance, what we called the rock room, which was a big concrete room. And I was like, okay, so what's going in here? And we put a Euphonic CS2000 in there, which just, I love mixing on that console, but recording on it, (laughs) it wasn't the same, you know. When I saw that happening, and then the owner comes to me and he says, uh, you know, I want to sell some equipment. Do you want anything? Look through stuff because I need to sell some stuff. And then he comes to me within a few months of that and goes, interested in buying the studio. Oh. And he was literally, because I had, he knew I had some money because I had equity in my house. The value of my house had gone up. And I had been looking at the notion of building a small room at home just to mix it. And it was like, he was offering me a five-room facility, which at one point it had like 20 employees, was now down to like seven or 10 employees or pennies on the dollar. And I seriously looked at that and I remembered one thing I'd said to myself very early on when I finally realized about studios and how they work. Never own and run a recording studio. Because <laughs> it's a nightmare. <laughs> so what have I been doing the last 15 years? And I looked at that and I thought, okay, there's either an opportunity here or there's a really high risk. So I spent a lot of time consulting with people in the industry, Fred Catero, Chris, Chris Hallaby, all these different people have been in the industry for a long time. And I went, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. Way too risky. And I'm responsible for the careers of other people. And one of them was my mentor, Tom Carr. And I was like, ooh, that was frightening. I don't have that kind of experience. It's, you know, I, I determination I could do it. But can you actually do it realistically? So I said no. So he sold it to someone who didn't know how to manage or run studios and people's careers were hurt. People were, you know, things like not paying our health insurance bills and not telling us. Wow, so you, like, paychecks and and health insurance. I mean, you you had all of that. Yeah, oh, yeah. At that time. Yeah, Dave Dave Porter, you know, a lot of people slandered Dave, but Dave actually took care of his people, and he took care of his studio, and he made decisions based, for the most part, you know, sound business decisions. They weren't necessarily what we as the engineers, creatives wanted, but, you know, it was what had to be done. There had to be a decision made. And I'm still really good friends with Dave. I mean, he's he's in a completely different industry and doing fine. Do you feel like you learned a lot about business from yeah, him? Yeah, I did. 
I learned a lot from him and several other people there. I'd had a contracting business when I was like 21. I had my contractor's license and was running a business and failed miserably when I shouldn't have. I was working all the time, but I failed because I didn't know how to run a business. So you, you ended up getting out of there. I had to make the decision. So I fortunately, I could kind of do the soft leave where I still did work there because I had a lot of clients. Some of them I still work with <laughs> 25 years later. <laughs> and in fact, I just did, believe it or not, I'm still doing radio spots. I just did a radio spot last Thursday with a client I've had for 25 years from the annex. He's still doing stuff and I'm still doing radio spots. You know, in those days it would have been like two or three hours. Now it's like an hour and a half and we're done. You know, I've already edited it, already done everything. It's already put together. We just go, you know? So yeah, I just, I made the decision. I looked around and I went, okay, things are not good in the industry. Things are changing on two levels. Uh, you have the big industry, big studios struggling because of economics and the changing internet brought you know change but also the availability of good recording equipment cheap changed things you still needed a professional to do things you still do and then a studio not being well managed a big studio in a tough time and it's like mm, yeah i need to do something on my own so i don't have to deal with that so i started out building a control room in an iso thinking oh you know i can do mixing here and a few overdubs uh, within six months of opening the doors, I realized I, I got to have a room. I got to be able to record drums. So, you know, it, it was becoming very apparent I needed to have a place I could work in. So I ended up, you know, over the course of a year, I built a 550 square foot small studio with a nice drum room, a bass ISO, and a small vocal ISO, and a really nice control room that David Blackmer of DBX helped me do the acoustics in. So that now, was really cool. Not David's son, but David himself. Yeah, well, no, 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 uh, Mike, Mike, I'm sorry, I said David, but it's actually Michael Blackmer who helped me. Okay, okay. Michael, his son, and Eric, his brother, who runs Earthworks now. Right. So Michael, I had worked with building, because I was still doing some contracting, building studios on the side or helping design or put in gear or whatever. So I helped Michael with some very high-end studios that he was doing around here in the Bay Area, little private ones. But their dad, David. Their dad is David. Yes, I'm sorry, did I? And, and, and for the audience, if you're not aware, David Blackmer was behind DBX. Wasn't he the one who created the, the VCA yeah. chip? Mm-hmm. Yep. And ultimately went on to Drummer. Yeah, went on to Drummer, was working with them. And Michael uh, did Dynaudio's BM series, which I was what I monitor on. Okay. Um, and then Eric, of course, his other son was went on to form Earthworks. Earthworks. Okay. And Michael worked with him briefly there at Earthworks in the initial days. So that was a great thing because we knew Michael. Tom Carr introduced me. So when Earthworks first came out with their mics, we had some of the prototypes to work with, which was great. It was so cool. Okay, I want to make sure that you're aware that our friends over at AEA Ribbon Mics have just introduced a brand new microphone into their lineup. I'm super excited about this. I've known about it for a little while, but now I can talk about it. I'm talking about the KU5A. Now, I don't have one yet, but I'm going to get my hands on one and we'll be able to listen to it on my voice. I'm super excited about that. Let me give you the facts. This is what I do know. Super cardioid polar pattern. And uh, that's different because a lot of ribbons are just, actually most ribbons are figure of eight, but this one is super cardioid. This one can be used outside and in live use, believe it or not. And it's got active electronics inside with a custom transformer. So you don't need a special mic preamp to use with ribbon mics to really make this thing shine. It's got a, an integrated high pass filter and it's got this built-in yoke. So it's, you know, you can screw it right on the stand and it's made in the USA. 
Now, this whole thing is kind of groundbreaking because, you know, with regards to ribbon technology, it's got this acutely focused directionality that rejects bleed from other instruments, room reflections, loud ambience in the studio and on stage. So it's relying on these really sharp nulls to reject unwanted bleed. And I think that that is going to be a great asset to this. So I'll put a link in the show notes. You can check it out. I'm excited about it. And if you're a fan of ribbon mics at all, I bet you're going to be excited about it too. So check it out. It's going to be at aearibbonmics.com. And there will be more information to come. And we'll get a mic and we'll try it out here on, on the show. Yeah, I think it'll be great. KU5A from AEA Ribbon Mics. Yeah. Tell me about the uh, the economics behind building your studio at your. This is at your house. Yeah. Tell me about that. What was what Don't was involved? Do it. Don't do it. <laughs> I was lucky in that I had experience as a contractor, so I knew what needed to be done. And I'd built by that time I had built or helped design probably about fifteen studios. So that was helpful. If you're going to do this on your own, you're going to spend a lot of money because soundproofing and this is where most people get hung up. Soundproofing and acoustic treatment are two different things. Yep. And soundproofing in a small space is very difficult. Soundproofing in a city full of, you know, low rumble is even harder. I'm fortunate I live on a busy street, but my studio sits at the back of a fairly deep lot. So I was able to, in a small space, do a fairly good job of uh, acoustic isolation. Can't beat out Harleys and helicopters, but you know, I can get most things. It was expensive. It took a year to build. It's it's funny. I still look around like, oh yeah, I never finished that. It's been 15 years. It's it's a tough thing to be honest. Probably about a hundred thousand dollars between building and getting all the wiring and everything in. And uh, one of the things that helped was Dave Porter sold me the DDA console, which we had just recapped the year before in Studio D for $3,500. I loaded it in the back of my pickup truck and drove it over the bridge. It was sticking out the back because the thing weighed about 300 pounds. And I had that uh, until 2012 when it needed recapping again. And I went, no, uh, I'm not going to do that. And I sold it for $3,500. Wow. So it never, you know, other than what I put into maintenance on it, it, it never cost me anything. So when you did your studio, was there any kind of, uh, this is kind of getting into the weeds a bit, so I won't go too deep, but concrete and, sl- and foundation work, is there anything that you did specific to keep yourself isolated or did you focus no, mainly I, on the, the framing? Um, no, I did. The, I actually did the pour myself. I actually had the truck back up and pour because I've done some concrete work so I did the pour myself and finished it off and I just did a straight pour because there were a couple of considerations this is back of my home so I wanted the pour to be pretty straight and pretty clean I did everything to code I went and researched all the codes and and earthquake strapping and all that and then I just the way I did the walls I did a kind of an older style uh, it's a double side wall it's not a double wall it's a double side wall where your plate connects but the plate floats on a neoprene and rubberized pucks so that the walls are isolated. But the problem is, is that to meet code, it has to be earthquake strapped. That sort of defeats the purpose of the, the pucks. But that helps to cut down at least on vibration transmission. Once again, you know, just to bring the audience into our world, earthquakes are a factor yep. for us. Oh, yeah. So everything we yeah, do in, the Bay, Area, in yeah. the Bay Area, it's like that's what we have to focus on. And I live a mile and a half from the Hayward Fault, which is expected to be the next monster. So, so you kind of be, you have to, you know, make preparations. You have to yeah. do certain things. Yeah. So you have this home studio and that you've been doing work out of. And so have you structured your freelance career around that studio? Yeah. Um, one of the things you were asking earlier about 
learning about business, one of the things I learned very early on, diversification. You're going to survive in this industry, you have to be diverse. So I'm probably, and I'm not bragging, just being realistic here, I'm probably one of the most diverse people in our industry because I've worked, at least in the Bay Area, because I've worked in building, wiring, refurbing consoles, managing studio, recording of all kinds of audio, you name it, at some point or another in time. I've done something, you know, film, TV, games, toys, music, sound capture, you know, or sample capture out in, you know, the real world and ambient recordings. And I've done those things, you know, in some form or another over the years. Almost, you know, kind of like here's the lake and I'm dipping in the top in different places, you know, and that helps to kind of do the overall picture. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, going to be successful at everything or, you know, really good at everything, but at least you know, I understand the basics of the concept and can and do what's necessary to do different things. So huh. in that diversification, so last week I was, I had a radio spot recurs- recording. I do education content online for Cisco. I've worked for them for like five years. I'm a contractor. I had, uh, I'm mixing two album projects right now. I was at LinkedIn doing rack builds for video racks for remote all hands because I worked for David Carroll Associates as a contractor. And David is like grandfather of installation. He built Skywalker. And so I do for David, I do high end like installation work. So I installed, I was one of a team of installers who were doing all the LinkedIn hands-on, which are fairly complex conference rooms with LED screen walls, five cameras, remote controllable cameras. And that's the thing too, is that it your diversification also diversifies itself from audio itself. Exactly. Because you stretch into video and you know, computers and... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had, I mean, computer technology. I've never, I know nothing about programming, but I've learned. I've had to teach myself, you know. It's like when the internet came along, I did, I learned HTML by, ooh, I can copy and paste that and that'll be, <laughs> that'll give me what I need, you know. How do I put these things together? Oh, yeah. I see. I get it, you know. Based on what you just said, what would be your overarching mantra about survival because you know you could diversify but you can also become distracted by trying to take on too much how do you really distill that down to wow what gig should i take should i turn this one down should i take this one where where is this one going to lead that's that's a funny question and it's a little debate i have with myself one of the things i learned from charlie albert was okay we can't necessarily do this but this is a really good job with a lot of money so we learn how to do it in a very short period of time. And we get good at it and the client doesn't know. And we deliver a good product. And anybody in the industry who's doing David Carroll, doing installs, uh, studios taking on new technologies, that's what you do. You you get in there, you sell it, and then you come back and go, okay, team, guess what we're doing? Wait, we don't know how to do that. Well, we're going to learn. Yeah. You guys sell pizzas? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we sell pizzas. I think yeah. there's a Simpsons episode where they do, where somebody calls, I think, Moe's or something. And, you guys do pizzas? Yeah, we do pizzas. Yeah, he makes donuts into yeah. pizzas. <laughs> how do we figure out how to do pizzas? <laughs> yeah, so be curious is what I have to say about that. Be willing to read and learn. Be willing to, you know, try your hardest. And there is an advantage for a lot of kids these days with the internet that's also kind of a disadvantage because you can see somebody doing it on a video and think oh that's going to work for what you're doing but that may not apply in your situation and that's something um you know we haven't talked about but i was teaching too i taught at cogswell for three years live sound and recording and those kids you know they're they're learning in an environment where it's not like how i learned with mentors in a room doing recording for real so there's a danger inherent in oh let's go online and look and see what tom lord algae's doing 
well, he's doing that, but it, that works in that situation, in that song. Is that going to work in your situation, in your song? You know, Or if you're putting together a complex conferencing system, who are you going to use? Are you going to use a Cisco system? Are you going to use a QSE QSIS system? Are you going to design your own system? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what all the needs are? And so, yeah, you got to be curious and you got to learn. You got to read, you got to research, you got you to do homework. But what do you what do you think about the state of mentorship in this day and age? Where, I mean, you and I have both been around the, this area or the Bay Area for many many years, and we've both seen the rise and fall of 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 not only the Bay Area music scene but the recording infrastructure that is really diminishing day by day. I don't think there is much mentorship, and I'll mea culpa here. It's like I would love to do that, but because of that diversity we've been talking about at my studio, it, it's it's not practical. My schedule changes so much constantly, and you can't have you know kids got to get there and they've got to be ready to go. And oh yeah, we're not doing that today. You know that's kind of tough on them. I don't I don't think there is much mentoring, and I, that's really sad. I, I really I think that's to the detriment of the industry, and I think a lot of other engineers of previous generation to me and you and our generation know that, and some are making an effort, you know, to do things. I think uh, Pensado's place is an example of an approach to that. It's an okay one. I wouldn't rely on it, but it's cool. It's definitely cool. What you're doing with this, with the working class audio, it's it's a part of all the slices of the pie to be an audio engineer. You know? Yeah. It's it's interesting. Like with the death of Jeff Emmerich, that just happened. Yeah, and there's somebody with a very different perspective on recording. Having spent some time with him and talked yeah. to him, or Fred Catero, who was a mentor to me, old school. I mean, he'd been recording. He's been recording since 1948. I mean, this is somebody who's watched the industry change, seriously change. That's true. I mean, if you if you take Jeff and you take Fred Catero, those are two guys who precede us. And the way they learned and everything about them was shaped in a different way. Different way? Different way. Time, different it's, world. It, it, and the way we learned and we operate is different than the next generation. I'm really curious what the next generation is going to look like and how, I've, how they I've operate. I've kind of already seen them a bit because I was teaching them at Cogswell and doing guest lecturing in some other schools. And and I've seen a lot of the younger generation going in. And, and, and what's interesting is games has kind of become the focus again. It wasn't in the late 90s because technology was changing enough to allow better audio. And now it's changing in because now DSP and programming has completely altered that whole industry. Uh, kids are going into that as programmers, not so much audio engineers. So it's a very different slant on it. Mm-hmm. And they look at problems in a different way than we do. Oh, I can use this, this plug-in to do that. And that's a cool thing because that's where the industry is going. The kind of things that are going on in terms of DSP power and abilities. It's amazing the abilities we have just in the last three years. But it's also dangerous in that they don't have the foundation of the Freds and the Jeffs and the Al Schmitz. And, you know, these people, Elliot Shiner, you know, these are people I admire because they do, they learn the hard way in rough conditions and did a great job and are still doing a great job in their 70s and 80s. And I'm not sure the kids are going to have that. I think the world is going to change for them so dramatically that it's going to also alter the kind of art form that comes out. Whether that's a good or bad thing, you know, that's debatable. That's that's an esoteric question. But I think on the downside of it is that they're going to forget the reasons why these things are designed the way they are now. And so when I was teaching, I, I made a conscientious decision to start them in the analog world on a tape machine. 
and go, here, here's why we do this. This is why we use a DSP plugin that adds saturation to something. Here's why we do that. Because it changes the tonal structure of what's going on in a good way. But you can overdo it. It's a subtle thing, you know. And I'll be honest, the kids don't understand subtle. <laughs> Things are a bit extreme with them, you know. And it's like, and I hear it in, in some of the modern music, particularly like the uh, EDM and all that. It's just brutally harsh up front and kind of, to be honest with you, unpleasant long term. And and they love it. They're young, you know. Their nervous systems have not connected to their brain yet. That'll happen sometime around 25. Um, but when they look back on it, none of that will be memorable. I don't think it'll have the memor, you know, the retention that the music we listen to as a kid. And what, but on the other hand, what excites me is there are a lot of kids going, ooh. Aretha Franklin, I love that. That's so cool. You see, I, Ooh, Zeppelin. I oh, wonder about that. that. Like, I uh, I was playing uh, Revolver at my house, and my 10-year-old, he absolutely loves the song Taxman. It's fascinating. He seems, even as a 10-year-old, to be intrigued by older things. This I, goes back to what I was just talking about with the EDM and everything so up front. There's no dynamic, therefore no depth. And you lose a lot of harmonic and content that way. There's a lot of, when you got space and things and dynamics, it allows things harmonically to be more open, more listenable. And I, that's what I think he's hearing because kids have very sensitive ears, extremely sensitive. They, they, they hear better than we do. And I think that's what they hear. They hear that depth and that color and they're like, ooh, that's really cool. So you've made it this far in life and you're still doing audio. <laughs> yeah, I'm still banging my head against the concrete. Yeah. What has been your approach to to money and business? I know it's it's a, it's an ever-changing thing probably, but what is your summation of it now? Like how does money and business function effectively Ooh. with audio? Yeah, that's that's a difficult question to answer because of the depth of unpredictability. You really have to be very careful about what you buy. First of all, let's just look at what you need to be a good audio engineer. You need a good system, a good room, and some good listening system. You know, there are people out there that can mix on headphones. It boggles my mind because I can't. To me, I, it's brutally unpleasant. I need to have some speakers and some air moving. I feel the same way about guitar amplifiers. Simulations are cool for fixing things, but I need a guitar amp with some air moving. What you choose to spend your money on, you need to be careful. And if you're patient, I know that's a tough word for anyone under 30, <laughs> but if you're patient and watch, all of these all of the things you want, you can get inexpensively out there. I referred my studio in 2012 through 2014, serious upgrade to a SS, little SSL console and, and a new Pro Tools system HD. And, and it was just a matter of paying attention, looking online. And this is the great thing about online. Looking, you know, hey, I need these interfaces. They're $4,000 a piece. And yeah, I can't budget that. Pay attention. Ooh, here's one on eBay, brand new in the box. Somebody ordered, didn't need for a job. Bingo, two grand. I got an HD interface. You know, that kind of thing, you know. For years, it, not so much anymore, but for a long time in the mid-2000s, I was wheeling and dealing on eBay like crazy, buying old gear, refurbing and selling, or buying gear that was broken and like just refurbing it and selling it on eBay for twice what I was paying for it. Hmm. I did really well with that for a while. That's one thing is how you manage your purchases. The other thing is is that uh, you can't be impulsive. You really cannot be. If you, you know, because a job may come where you need something, and if you were impulsive last month and, and you've spent that money, you, you can't take the job, okay? 
The hardest thing with all of it is managing time for networking. Because when you're working, you can't network. And if you got to work to earn money, it's this constant battle. And it's been a battle that honestly has ground me down over the last 15 years. It's this constant battle between having to work. For example, we were talking about Friday going to the AES studio crawl, which I helped set up and put together. But I couldn't go because I had to work. I had I had a client with a demand and a deadline. And it's money and it's a client relationship. And that, that ties into the second component of this, which is professionalism and how you deal with your clients you know who do you have and what are you how are you dealing with them you would ask uh when before we started this you were asking about how money how you get paid and money and that kind of thing money's always a tough subject but in the professional world you say here's my rate here's what i ask for up front here's when it's due if you don't pay it in due in time or you cancel within a certain period of time you get billed if you don't pay me then i start increasing a percentage on that for penalty and I actually, for the most part in my 15 years independent, I've been very fortunate in that domain. I've had more problems with corporations than I've had with private people with pay. Yeah. And always be willing to work, flex, be flexible with that, you know, because your client, if they're coming to you, you know, this is money out of their pocket they've hard earned if they're doing a music album or something. So be flexible with them. Take, you know, payments over a period of time, you know, while you're doing the project, just as long as it doesn't kill you. <laughs> and put you in an awkward situation. And lastly, do watch your credit and get a card that you can only use in emergencies for business. You know, go ahead and do your business as an LLC or whatever. Set up your business, pay the 800 bucks, get it done, and then have a card in that name because I have an American Express with my business name on it. It's amazing the discounts I get on things just because of their relationships and your business. Yeah. I walked in Lowe's to buy stuff for my client for LinkedIn and she goes oh this is a business card that's 10% off but that was 10% off what I paid not necessarily what LinkedIn paid you know some people are set up as a sole proprietor and in California particularly it's expensive to have an S corp or an LLC it's very expensive because you may have to pay you know if you're buying things and selling them to your client there's there's a tax issue there you know that especially in the last uh, I guess it's been about four years ago they changed the law on that so you got to you got to pay your amounts in quarterlies. So it's it's kind of a, I'm, so, I'm a sole proprietor and I have remained that way, uh, even though the encouragement of some others to do LLC for liability issues. But I've also been pretty careful about who and what I deal with, particularly with live sound stuff, because that, that gets pretty complicated uh, for liability issues. You know, research it, because it's constantly changing and yeah. evolving. And it depends and, on the state that you're in yeah, it or the country. On the state or country mm-hmm. or even if you're uh, one of the things to look at, if you're doing like contract work where you are going out of country or traveling between states, you need to look at that and talk to a you know, qualified CPA who understands the music industry because let's be honest, our industry is not like any other and never has been. It's, it's definitely outside the norm and a lot of people don't get that. It's, it's a little, it's a little kind of, you know, like a musician. A little flaky and a little weird sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You know? Um, I want to tell you, Audio-Technica sent me some new headphones to check out. I know, I'm a huge fan of the ATH-M40Xs, but for a completely different experience and a different kind of use, um, you got to check these ATH-R70X headphones out. Really comfortable to wear. Like, very, very good for long listening periods uh frequency response seems to be quite flat and uh, a lot of detail so this is kind of more this is a higher end headphone for sure uh definitely 
geared towards uh, maybe you're doing some uh, QA work uh, in mastering where you're checking your masters for any, you know, irregularities, clicks, pops, etc. Any of that, bad transitions. Uh, also for mixing, too, if you, if you need to do some mixing on headphones while everybody's sleeping or you don't want to piss your neighbors off. These are great. I love wearing them. And uh, they have detachable cables. And for some reason, it doesn't matter how you attach them. The left and right stays the same. That's really freaky. It's cool, but it's a little freaky. Um, really durable. There's a, a, a metal headband at the top. That actually doesn't touch your head. They have these little wing things that are padded. They just sit right on your head. You kind of forget you're wearing them after a while, which is great. So uh, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, for these. Uh, ATHR70X. There's a lot of fine details that uh, you can read about on the website. Um, 40, 45 millimeter drivers. Uh, five hertz to 40 kilohertz frequency response. Is that, that's right. That's not a typo. Wow. I can't hear that. I don't know about you, but that's pretty cool. Um, like I said, detachable cable. What else? Yeah. This is a pretty high end headphone. Um, this is not something you want to, you know, let your clients drop on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. If you hand these to somebody, you want you want them to be careful because these are these are nice. Open back, by the way, yeah. So uh, you don't feel like your claustrophobic tendencies are going to get the best of you with these headphones on. So yeah, check them out. The uh, ATHR seventy Xs. Link will be in the show notes. All right, let's get back to it. You talk about liability. Have you ever known an audio professional to be sued? I was involved in an incident in the, God, when was that? 20 years ago. Yeah, late 90s. A remote recording of a certain very famous musician who passed recently, unexpectedly. And all to two two inch machines. And one of the performances was not recorded through an error in the remote truck, which I was in. It was not my error, but that was a very serious thing. And that involved. Um, the end of a business and a transition to doing something different. So yes, it happens. In the live world, we've had some pretty serious incidents in the last five years with uh, windstorms in the Midwest blowing over Derek systems that are supposedly set to to what's required code-wise and they didn't hold up. So if you're doing live sound stuff and you see something sketchy, don't brush it off. Pay attention because that could be your career and the rest of your life. It's it's a worthwhile thing to pay attention. A lot of, you know, kids don't think, younger, inexperienced people don't think about that. Right. You know? But it's serious. It's a serious thing because someone dies, your career and your life is over. They will be after you for the rest of your life for the liability of that. And it can get really ugly. It could bankrupt you permanently. Yeah, you really have to watch what you involve yourself in sometimes. Yeah, yeah you do. You really do. And, and, of course, when we're young and we're doing things, we don't think about that kind of stuff. We just do. Yeah. And that's where the danger comes in. It, it's not the same world as when I was young in the 70s and 80s where we could just do anything and get away with it. You can't now because there are consequences and they're serious. Yeah. No, there's the, the liability of bodily harm. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's say. equipment liability. And then there's, yeah, equipment liability. Now, do you think it's paranoid to think 
if I have somebody over to my house where I have a home studio and I'm a sole proprietor and then somebody trips coming in, uh, trips on the threshold coming into my front door and whacks their head on, on a piece of furniture and needs stitches. Yeah, that's a tough one because in my mind and in my experience, that goes back to who, who you're working with. Do you know who you're working with? And let's be honest, in, in the music industry, who you're working with can be a little sketchy. Um, creative, uh, and this is not a slander to anyone, but creative types tend to not be so focused on some other things because they're very esoteric oriented and very creative. And this kind of goes back to something you were asking about what's required in this industry. You got to be two things. You got to be together and have your act together, which is a very logical thinking, but you also got to have an artistic side. And I think the engineers who are most successful are the ones who can do both. And that's, that's a hard, that's a tall order for any human. Not everybody's built that way. You know, everybody's got different focuses and different orientations. It's interesting, too, in talking about what work to accept. I find that since I diversified and I do other things in audio, I'm not rich, but I've got enough money in the bank that I can know that the next couple months are at least okay. So when it comes to certain gigs, some I've, I've had some calls sometimes where I'm like, man, I don't want to do that. You know, for me, it's it, just because of years of experience, I have a gut feeling about someone when I'm talking to them on the phone. If I if that gut feeling rings, I'm like, yeah, okay. So my rate just went way up. You know, as a you know, I don't want to I don't want to be discouraging to them or rude, but there are ways to politely discourage someone you don't want to work with, and raising your rate is one of them. Uh, <laughs> astronomically raising it, um, or being booked a lot, you know, or you know that kind of thing. Yeah, if if your gut feeling is telling you about someone. Listen to that, because there are unscrupulous people. I will say they are a lot less than there used to be. And I think the reason for that is, quite honestly, is the lack of money in the industry now. And that's sort of weeded out a lot of people. Yeah. My experience in audio, for the most part, has been outstanding. Me with, too. With people. And you mentioned, you know, getting a red flag, essentially, when you're talking to somebody on the phone. I have an exceptional radar for that. Yeah, I do too. And I don't know why that is, but every time, every, <laughs> every time, like I've said, no, I'm not going to do that. I have, in fact, I remember uh, listening to an answering machine. The states dates my age a bit. I was listening back. <laughs> Wait, to the, was it a cassette one or a no? It was a micro cassette. <laughs> it was a micro cassette. I was at a studio, and uh, the guy who owned the studio heard the message, and I heard the message, and he goes, "You should take that gig." And I said, "You're crazy." That guy who left the message is crazy, and yeah. I'm not doing the gig. Yeah. So he gave it to one of the other guys in the studio. It was a nightmare. Of course. Absolute nightmare. And, I, you know, I had this, and, and I hate to say it, if you really want experience in this industry, you got to have nightmares, you know? You really do. And I'm not talking about the ones during your sleep. I'm talking about the waking ones where you're in the room. And I could tell you some stories of things I experienced at the annex late at night that would just, like, people look at me when I tell them and go, are you serious? I'm like, oh, yeah, that happens. <laughs> Yeah, you, you really do have to experience failure and, and adversity and, and problems to really uh, appreciate the good times. Which goes back to kind of the last thing you were asking about being an engineer, which is perspective. Yeah. I think that's on two levels. Because if you're mixing something, there's close and far perspective. And you got to be able to jump between those two or you can't be a decent mixer. There's also the same thing in doing business. Are you know you're not in competition with anybody else, but yourself. Mm -hmm. That is a firm philosophy that I've lived by since I kind of got that 20 years ago. It's like I'm not here to compete with anybody else. No other engineers, no other studios, no other artists. I'm here to compete with myself to get better. So I'm always looking for a way to get better at what I do. I may fail at it, but at least I tried. 
you know? And that, I think that is a concept a lot of young and experienced folks don't get. They think they're in competition with other folks. And I was there too. I did it too. And no, you're in competition with one thing only, yourself. How do you get better? Which means you need to figure out, am I actually doing good work? If I compare my work to others, and that may take time and distance from something, which you know you don't always get in our business, but mm-hmm. that's really what it takes, time and distance. So look back at the things you did 10 years ago. Is it any good, and where have you come? You know? Now, what about your work-life balance? Have you managed <laughs> to... Uh, <laughs> balance? Yeah, tell us <laughs> that. Do you have any balance? <laughs> no, not really. I, I'm not sure that anybody in our industry does. There are a few, those who do, you know, big names, who make money. But uh, I was watching a, uh, sorry, his name's completely slipping my mind, a big engineer was talking about um, taking on sessions. And he goes, well, you know, I, I take on the big names because that will cover the holes in the smaller projects I do for lesser rate. And I'm like, yeah, that's been my life for 15 years, for longer. It's like, yeah, you, sometimes you take, that's a charity gig, can you do a lower rate? Okay. Because there's, you know, nice people, it's a cool gig, you might meet some people. And then the next gig is like, you know, it's a LinkedIn gig where it's, you know, 60 hours in a week and a lot of money. So you're working hard, but at least, you know, you're making good money. So that's kind of what you got to do. You have to you have to look at the whole thing overall. But balance in career, no. And sadly, uh, I have seen one, two, three, four people in the audio industry die under the age of 60 in the last three months of heart attacks. Yeah. Take care of yourself. And, you know, um, I got a few pounds on here and I'm like trying to get on a regimen and working out every day. And even that is difficult because my schedule changes. If I have to get up at 6 a.m. and go to LinkedIn all day and spend an hour and a half on the road each way and blah, blah, blah. It's hard to do that, you know. Or if you're on tour, it's like, you know, bus, sleep, private gig, set up, dinner, show, tear down, back on bus, sleep. When do you work out and take care of yourself? So... Eat well, party a little, don't get crazy. There's a day for that. And take care of yourself. Because if you don't, you're going to be dead by the time you're 50 or 60. Yeah, because it's a lot of sitting around. It's a lot of driving. It's a lot of sitting in front of computers. Low, low heart rate, you know, kind of things, you know. No no uh, cardiovascular. I'm going to include a link in the show notes. And I, and I should send you this as well. I found this app that, you know, if you are uh, one that doesn't really want to go to a gym... And you want to... Like most of us engineers? Like most of us. And you want to kind of privately take control of, of, of your body through some kind of workout. I've been doing this uh, abs workout each morning. And uh, it's just an app that, you know, basically tells you what to do. It's just like, okay, 20 jumping jacks, let's go. And, you know, blows the whistle. And it's it's been great for yeah, me Yeah, who so needs far. people anymore? Computers can run your life now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Let this AI turn you into someone with six-pack uh, abs. Yeah. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. to meet me for coffee and uh, and great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, man, it's an honor. And it's nice to see all these other people, including some of my ex-interns that you've interviewed. Really? They're engineers on their own. Yeah. Jay and Ian Polici. Oh! Those two are so awesome. They are. They are so awesome. Well, great to talk to you. Great to see you again. And uh, thanks again for being Thank on you. the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Christopher Scott Cooper here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. want to thank you for being here with me today and listening. Also want to encourage you to stop on by the Working Class Audio website. Maybe click on one of those sponsor links because those folks help make the podcast possible. I'm talking about Universal Audio, AEA Ribbon Mics, Audio Technica, Gearslets.com, Roswell Pro Audio, and the License Lab. 
I want to thank Mr. Chuck Smith for his voice, and I want to thank Mr. Cliff Truesdell for the music. Where is the music, Cliff? There it is. All right, and I want to thank you once again for being with me each and every week. Spread the word. Tell all your friends. Get out on social media. Tag us. Do whatever you got to do. But, yeah, let everybody know. And until next week, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.